everybody. Welcome back to Making Waves Podcast with Tom Prather. Hey, so I am so excited about this episode uh, this week. It is with Drew Dempsey from Sunset Sound Recorders, famous Sunset Sound of Hollywood, California. They have recorded some of my favorite albums of all time that have meant so much to me. Albums by Rolling Stones, Beach Boys, Prince, and the first five Van Halen albums that we are going to go into deep detail about. Um, But we're also going to discuss the fact that they are now on YouTube and all the social media channels, um, opening the doors, kind of letting us go behind that gated fence and see what's inside of these studios and talk about the history, talk about some of the stories um, from some of these albums and working with these uh, musicians that we all have grown to love to hit the market now with such great content is awesome. So we're going to explore how that happened, the branding behind it, and um, we're going to talk some Van Halen. Um, So people that are interested and into Sunset Sound and want to get a piece of Sunset Sound, um, Drew and Sunset Sound has been kind enough to give the listeners of Making Waves podcast a discount. So if you go to sunsetsound.com, go to shop, hit merchandise, and they are giving us a 10% discount. So just at the end of the shopping cart, I think, uh, you want to enter the code WAVES10, W-A-V-E-S-10, for 10% off of anything in the merchandise section. Um, They have men, women, things for men and women, uh, kids, and uh, I currently am in between sizes, have been for some time, so... uh, I may get like a larger size, a goal size, or maybe I'll just stick to a hat. I don't know. But anyway, without any more delay, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Drew Dempsey at Sunset Sound Recorders. Drew, have some rapid fire questions for you. So it's the first thing you think of. I think I know some of these. All right. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Dogs. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Star Wars. Uh, Rolling Stones or Beatles? Beatles. Beatles. So that, that's been the toughest one for everybody so far. Um, you might not drink these. Coke or Pepsi? It's more of a branding thing. Coca-Cola. Okay. Uh, beach or mountains? Beach. It's got to be beach. Uh, PC or Mac? Mac. All right, so you're a Midwesterner, right? Originally from Chicagoland area, went to school at Indiana University for undergrad, and then made my way out west to escape. (laughs) All right, cool. So this usually is east or west coast, so I'm going to say mid-America or west coast? Uh, West coast, 100%. All right, cool. Three more. Kramer or Costanza? (laughs) Costanza. Superman or Batman? Batman. All right. I think I know this one. Kardashians or Osbournes? Osbournes. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. You and I got acquainted on Instagram. Um, kind of over Van Halen stuff uh, via Sunset Sound. Yeah. And we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that later. But before we get into that, who is, who is Drew Dempsey? Where did Drew Dempsey grow up? Tell me a little bit about your backstory. Ooh. I hope you got some time here. <laughs> um, well, I, again, grew up uh, around Lake Michigan. There's um, kind of a summer area for... Um, residents of Chicago called Long Beach, Indiana. It's about 50 miles outside Chicago. Um, I grew up there. My father was a realtor and also a promoter for Buddy Guy um, in Chicago. And I early on in life, I was listening to, you know, Sundays with the Beatles on XRT and I was great friends with Mitch Michaels. He's a famous DJ back there and um, hung around with Buddy's kids a lot too. Uh, 
Greg Guy and Michael Guy, um, Shauna Guy, who she's a recording artist as well, but grew up in the blues world and was, you know, knew about Muddy Waters when I was eight years old. Yeah. So I started playing guitar and um, piano. My mom was a piano player, pianist. And then I went to Indiana University after high school uh, to the Jacobs School of Music. And that's very classical. So I switched my majors and uh, actually Jacobs School of Music, Kenny Aronoff, who I'm interviewing next week, was started off for the drummer of John Mellencamp. Yep. And he's John Fogarty now, and he's toured all over the world. He should come on this. He'd be a great guest. But he's coming into Sunset next week to talk to us about his life and music, which is oh, cool. so extravagant. But uh, Jacob's School of Music at Indiana University, and then he went there as well. Then um, I, right after graduation, I headed out west with $700, uh, Lexus LS400, 1990, with no speedometer. Oh my god! I had two swag joints that someone gave me, and that was 2006. Um, I got here and I slept with the musicians that I knew, and got a place for two weeks, and went to grad school at Musicians Institute here in Hollywood, right on Hollywood Boulevard, for music business. Uh, then I started promoting shows, what my dad did, kind of as a side project, but I was doing it primarily. I noticed that all the money was on the back end of music, not playing out, you know. Yeah, organizing the shows, promoting, um, managing some bands and stuff. Uh, Michael Williams' band, who opened up for Buddy Guy and was on Paradigm, so I worked with Paradigm a lot, which is or well, was Monterey at the time. Um, but all those blues guys, Johnny Lang, Buddy Guy, they're all in Monterey, and that which is now Paradigm. But um, yeah, and then I a couple years ago. I'd always tracked at Sunset Sound because it's the greatest sounding rooms ever. Um, if I ever had an album or an artist that I wanted to just get the drums done, especially, I would go to Sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, Sunset Sound is, you know, a recording studio in Hollywood that's famous for The Doors, Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, Van Halen, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin. Not, not Jimi Hendrix. He did come there, but not, he didn't record a track there. And um, I always went there because it was so great. It's independently owned by a gentleman named Paul Camerata. His father started it, and he took it over at 27 years old. And I became really good friends with him. So he put me at the vice president of marketing, then president of marketing, and now I'm doing. We're branching off in 2021 with uh, these shows, the Van Halen Roundtable, where. We have people that were associated with Eddie Van Halen or the, the recording, the engineers on the sessions, um, you know, people that worked with them come in and tell the stories live in Studio 2 where they did 90% of their work. And you know, we've just kind of exploded with IK Multimedia. They do a Sunset Sound plugin for us, uh, which is a Pro Tools plugin where if you live in Kansas, you can... You know, make it sound like you're in Sunset Sound Studio too. Or oh, I love that you have those drums. chamber rooms. Yeah, the uh, the studio was the first one to really have echo chambers in the country. Yeah. Um, we 1960 we put those in, and then soon Capitol Records, uh, Gold Star, they all followed suit. But we were the first ones, and that really attracted clients uh, early on. I mean, they're legendary. I mean, it's uh, when I saw that you had those plugins, I got very excited. It's really interesting to me because where you caught my eye was um, with the Van Halen stuff. And um, huge Van Halen fan. My first gig in the business was um, photographer for the um, for part of the Balance Tour. But your stuff reached out to me because, first of all, as as someone that's in video production and branding and marketing. I thought what you're doing was genius because in the age of, I actually wrote it down here. Um, you know, we're in the age of like laptop home studios and you and sunset is just legendary. Um, and most of those kind of recording studios or businesses that are perceived to have their heyday at another time, haven't caught up with branding and media and online distribution, online video, and you guys just knocked it out of the park. And you're making recording such a cool thing now. And I, I'm just telling you, I really, really appreciated it. You guys doing it, you guys sharing the the, the story. And and um, it's weird to say, but I'm happy for you guys that you jumped on. I, I think to your leadership, 
um, behind your leadership to jump, you know, into this world and, and really kind of make a splash. Yeah, it, the place is so magical. You know, we're right on Sunset in Hollywood. Again, we're independently owned. Uh, yeah. The owner, the original owner, Walt Disney started. It was only Disneyland recordings, you know, like the Parent Trap and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Broomsticks Bambi, uh, you know, all those Disney recordings, the rides even. Tootie Camerata, who started with Walt Disney, built it because he needed to track all his music for these films. So it was mm. Disneyland Records. Tootie was the head of Disneyland. And then we got signed with A&M Records and like Brazil 66 and those kind of acts came in. But then when, you know, the doors came in, it became really a rock and roll house. But the philosophy for this whole 60 years we've been open is no cameras. We don't take pictures of the artists that are coming in here to work. We don't take any pictures of them. So, unless, you know, recently we've been been getting approached by photographers that the bands or artists would come in. So they were emailing us stuff and kind of saying like, hey, I didn't know if you wanted to see this. Here's Frank Zappa, you know, playing a cello in Studio 2 for Hot Rats. Or here's Brian Wilson at the console during Pet Sounds or Good Vibrations. And Brian uh, still comes in a lot. But all this stuff just made me think like, you know, we need to, that was kind of the thing though. It was mystique. That's why people wanted to come there. The mm -hmm. emails I get every day are hundreds of them. Just, can I please come in for a tour? My dad, you know, was a recording engineer. We can't do that. One, it's COVID, liability, a hundred other reasons. But we're kind of opening the doors digitally now. Uh, one, it's lucrative. Two, it's, we want to document the story here um, for, you know, as long as it goes on, uh, if it's another 20 years or another 20 days, have the engineers, the producers, the artists, anybody that was involved in the studio come back to home base and let us know what it was like, you know, working with Brian Wilson. What was Jim Morrison like? Um, you know, Bruce Botnick, the very famous recording engineer mm -hmm. who did Janis Joplin and Van Halen, some of their stuff, but all the Doors albums. He told us this great story about when Jim Morrison broke in and was high on acid and <laughs> was ransacked Blessed Sacrament Church across the street, came back over at one in the morning, got a fire extinguisher, destroyed all of Studio One, and this is while they're recording Doors One. He runs out of the place, jumps over our gate, because we're a gated block here, and his shoe got left in there. So the next day, Tootie comes in, the whole Studio One, we were only one studio then, we have three now, but it was completely destroyed, because he went off, he thought the, the studio was on fire, and he put it out with a fire extinguisher, but he was tripping on acid. So, like, those kind of stories are just insane, so cool to listen to. And, you know, it's crazy stuff like that or to the moment that Brian Wilson wrote Good Vibrations on the tack piano, which oh, we gave man. to Prince later on in the 80s. I mean, it's just one thing after another. And I'm just the biggest music history guy. Mm -hmm. So I talked to the owner, who I'm really good friends with, and I said, you know, let's just start documenting these stories and let's record there's always people in there, just legends. David Crosby was just in, and we just sit around and talk about all the stuff that happened. You know, David produced Joni Mitchell's first album, and it was in Studio One, and he's like, oh, we we're sitting over here, and I'm like, what if we told these stories and just recorded them while we're talking? So, you know, we put it up on our YouTube, and boom, a million views right off the bat. Yeah. And then when Eddie, Eddie passed away, Eddie was a great friend of um, Paul Camerata, my studio owner right now. Mm hmm you know, he did five albums there. They traded cars back and forth, and um, it was that was a huge shock. So we wanted to do a Van Halen November and gather as much information, share the work orders, share the recording process, you know, some master tapes we had uh, acquired and some cool stuff. And, you know, the reaction to that was just so amazing. And then also we realized that we can't <laughs> ever begin to talk about Van Halen or Eddie or the music writing or Don Landy or Ted Templeman who's coming in as well um, next week but in one month so we're like let's just do this forever and when people come in we'll sit down and just have a couple cameramen start it up and run the sound and then just share it with everyone we don't charge money we put it on our YouTube which yeah. gains some ad money but stories um, they need to be documented so we can you know in 50 years you know the doors music if you're looking into it, you want to see where the studio it is, you can go in there and see a studio tour on our YouTube. You can listen to Bruce Bonnick, the engineer, tell these crazy stories about how he got Robbie Krieger's guitar to sound like the Butterfield Blues Band. All these, you know, just amazing yeah. 
things and it's you know it's nice to share it with all the fans because that's the music that is the real music that inspired everything and you know just it's never ending rolling stones three albums doors five albums van halen five albums beach boys you know they have like 20 different projects there david crosby buffalo springfield is pretty much built there and uh jim messina who i just interviewed as well miss loggins messina he'd be another great guest if you want me to refer him to you but he started as a staff engineer at Sunset Sound. Yeah, Jim Messina was started at 19 years old <laughs> as a studio tech. And he um, started tracking for Buffalo Springfield and Neil Young and those guys, Stephen Stills. And then he got in the band, played bass for them. He had to audition for their last album when uh, Dewey got busted with pot and got sent back to Canada. And so... Uh, yeah, Jim Messina got in the band, and then he produced the last album, and then he went on to you know write the most amazing material ever. Sure, with Kenny Loggins and Solo, and just incredible, incredible stories. I could go on forever, but it's uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it warms my heart. Um, a as a music fan and a musician, you can see some of them in the background. Um, yeah, I see that the uh, the strap back there, the Eddie's. Yeah, you know that so. <laughs> That was the guitar that I drew on my notebooks and had in my locker and had on the walls and painted destroyed guitars to make it look like that. So I bought that a handful of years ago. My pride and joy is that Les Paul. Um, I mean, I personally like it. It's a standard faded 2005. Um, but uh, right before Les Paul died, a buddy of mine went up to uh, New York at the Iridium and I was able to get him to sign it. So oh, it's signed to me from Les Paul. Les Paul, actually, a fun little fact, though. He yeah. actually designed, he designed the echo chambers at Capitol Studios, uh, you know, the famous Capitol recording buildings. Yeah. And they put their echo chambers in, and he designed them for them. Oh, wow. We were the first ones on the block to have them 100%. And then four or five years later, three years later for some, but... Uh, Capital put them in, and Capital's known for doing orchestras, Frank mm -hmm. Sinatra, that kind of stuff. We're a rock and roll house, which you know, we have 300 gold albums. The amount of Grammys is outrageous, and um, you know, just even today, Kings of Leon, and you know, Audio Slave, and Rage Against the Machine, and those artists don't track at Capital. So mm -hmm. that's kind of they're a great studio. Obviously, a lot of famous stuff, but um, Frank Sinatra they're really known for, and uh, you know, a lot of great orchestras. But Sunset has that rock and roll soul. It's like built into the walls. So I guess that's my question, never having been there. And I'd love to talk you into swinging by one day. Um, what is it like when you, when you, when you walk in, when you, when you're in studio too, does it have a vibe to it? Does it, do you, I mean, describe yeah. that. It's the most, in a good way haunting feeling ever it's we're so untouched that you know studio three which is famous for prince doing 10 years of work in there it looks exactly the same as the day he left and as you might know recording hasn't changed that much in the last 60 mm -hmm. years you know it's the same sound consoles it's the same microphones and we have all those microphones so like especially when i go in the mic room and start going through you know like a neumann u47 and seeing that in a picture with Brian Wilson on the Pet Sounds trackings, or you know Jim Morrison loved the Telefunken. We have all those microphones still, and the rooms are just, you know, we're not dated, but it looks like 1975 in here still. And if you go on our uh, YouTube at Sunset Sound Recorders, we do a Studio One. I put a tour up of it. Just that's really our original classic room. You know, Janis Joplin left that room the day she died. Mm. The last song she tracked was Mercedes Benz. But I mean, from being in there 10,000 times already, there's not one day where I don't walk through our gate and just immediately your mind goes to, you know, if it was the stones exile on main street, I was just listening to, I'm thinking about, you know, what Keith did his overdubs on for, uh, you know, a track or what, I wonder where Mick was standing if he was in the live room or an ISO booth. And it's just every little corner has some insane amount of just status and history and emotion. And 
there's a lot of hauntings and stories of stuff. People say it's haunted by Jim Morrison. I've never seen any of that, but there are in our vault upstairs where we hold all our old master tapes. <laughs> I got a great story about Pete Townsend in a minute, but uh, we have all our master tapes over there. The artists just leave, you know, they might've worked on something one day, didn't like it. So they, they don't give a shit. And it's like, we have Bill Cosby's like comedy records. We have the original oh masters for the monster match that was recorded up there. Uh, you know, La Bamba was done there. The film La Bamba, Bo Diddley, all these historic artists. Um, but there was apartments up there for the church across the street on Sunset. And we leased it out to nuns. This is in the <laughs> 70s, right before Prince came. And uh, they didn't pay their rent. So there's like three apartments in our vault, which are just empty now. But it's like, you know, they're like 1930s apartments. But there was these nuns that would live up there and an altar boy, which was one of the nuns' sons. They didn't pay their rent. Uh, for a couple months, so we had to call the police to go there, and the altar boy had killed his mother, and the body was just sitting up there oh for my gosh. months. You know, we didn't. So there's a lot of weird hauntings, kind of that kind of stuff, where you walk into <laughs> old fronts and weird noises, and but that's in our that's above Studio Three, which is, um, you know, was built in 1976. So um, there's just all this energy in there, you know. Yeah. All these great creatives, the the greatest artists of our time, you know, did so much, e expel so much emotion in there, and thought process, and love, and hate, and arguing, and you know, joy, and just uh, their their art. It was all done in these rooms, and we haven't messed with anything. So it's like, you know, I'm long story long. I just I'm <laughs> exuberant every day I'm in there. I mean. I'm very lucky to be the president of marketing at Sunset Sound and be able to share all this stuff, research all this stuff. And we've got a lot of big things, gigantic things in the works now for 2021. And you're going to be seeing a lot more of Sunset Sound. Was, was that a tough sell originally to ask to get cameras in there? I know that you had said it was a kind of like the golden rule not to. Yeah, not so much with the owner because it kind of just evolved from one interview and it was like it just went crazy and people were so excited to learn about Van Halen and hear from the people that worked on the sessions or like Brian Kehue, another great guest you should get. Mm -hmm. He's the one that was assigned to go in the vault for Warner Brothers. And he's the only person that, you know, he's done a lot of things like Fleetwood Mac reissues. He's doing the book on Abbey Road right now, but Warner Brothers uses him to go in these vaults. So he was, you know, the amount of not only being a gigantic Van Halen historian, but he was the one that got to know what we all want to know. What's left, you know? Is there instrumentals out there? Is there unreleased stuff? Um, so when we got that kind of information to come out, it was, uh, my owner was like, yeah, let's run with it. Let's do it. You know, do whatever you want. And yeah. I was like, okay. A lot of, some of my people that work there didn't like it at all. They wanted to pretty much just no one gets to know what goes on in here and that's why certain artists come here because they know that nobody's going to know they're here and like instagram and all this bullshit we don't want that so but luckily the owner sided with me and uh here we are but, well uh, it's more documenting history i don't think you guys are are notifying everyone who just came through the back door and again i think these stories need to be told and if you read Look at our videos that have 100,000 and 200,000 views on them. And the comments are, thank you so much for doing this. This is amazing. I can't believe you guys are sharing this information. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Why should we sit on this information? You know, we, this should be shared with everyone. People want to, they listen to the music. They get that. They want to know the stories behind it. Yeah. What was their thought process? Just listening to David Lee Roth ramble on like live mics is the greatest thing ever because you can kind of see what they were talking about you hear don landy in the background you know yelling at dave and you know was ted templeman was he really running the show or was eddie you know telling him what to do and i think those are the things that nobody knows and we're diving into it and have you listened out. to that stuff oh yeah i mean oh. even on the one on episode two of van halen roundtable where brian yeah. who came back he brought those um, he brought the room mics for Eruption. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you listened to that, yep. but then he played some unreleased audio of, well, he played what he could play for us on the internet, but we listened to a lot more. Um, it's David, you know, talking about some band, or he's mimicking some band called Volar X, Voltar X. 
and they were spacemen. They used to go around L.A. in the 70s. They were in a band, but they they dressed up as like astronauts and spacemen and weird people. And Dave's like, yeah, Dave David Lee Roth says in the mic in 1977, he's like, welcome Earthlings or something like that. And uh, you can hear Don Landy, we shut the door, Dave. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, you could, you could picture that so much. I can see David Lee Roth probably, you know, crazed out of his mind and they're trying to get, you know, Janie's crying done. And, um, but I want to share all this stuff. Yeah. The owner wants to, and the fans want it. And, you know, their recording process is, is fascinating how fast they work. Unbelievable. They the work orders. They just, they were a great band. They came in, the first time they came in in 1977, April 4th, they did 25 songs for the demos. Ted Templeman signed them at the Starwood, brought them into Sunset Sound. Cause he, had, he did his band here. He did Doobie Brothers. He was a very famous producer. Actually, and this is a great book, Ted Templeman by Greg Renoff. He'd be another great guest. I have it. <laughs> um, you know, they did 25 tracks on 10 rolls of tape in one day. I mean, that's insane. It's those stories that are a part of history, right? And they're intertwined with everything involved in that music. So when I come out to L.A. to do work, um, I always have to go to the, and it might sound silly, but I always have to go to the Rainbow Room. And I, I just love sitting there because, A, you, it, there's just that vibe in the room that, like, Led Zeppelin was over there probably in that corner and God knows what happened under, you know, all sorts of things. But it's like you never know who's in the room, you know? That could have been the engineer for that, and that could have been the roadie for that, and that guy played, you know, whatever. And it's just, it's like sunset sound is like that but just amplified i mean it's just yeah. the creation where all that stuff happened and just that mojo and it's you know no one know where no one knows where it comes from but it happened there you know in that building in those rooms the rainbow actually has a great i'm friends with that family um but they own the whiskey as well yep. and they just did a documentary on the rainbow but that place is my my owner paul camarada he sat in on an episode and told a great story about john bonham because the limo wasn't there, he started throwing champagne against the wall. And I mean, these guys lived it. You know, Paul uh, has been in the recording industry for 60 years. Um, you know, there's no corporate sponsor or partners of ours. It's just him, him and his dad, the father son operation. It's a gigantic platform that they have here and have accrued. But, you know, I love that stuff. And I don't care if it's cheesy or not. I think that stuff's simply amazing. And I don't care how old I am or how many times I've seen it. We would go sit outside and smoke jays when I when I moved here, in front of the Guns N' Roses house, and you know, on Clark and Motley Crue lived right there. And it's just there's a, just there's something magical about that. I appreciate you telling those stories. I love what you're doing. On uh, as a and and aside from that, on the branding side of things, you're just doing a really really good job, just you. telling these stories. You know, so I um. I'm glad we glad we found each other. Real quick though, the Chateau yeah. Marmont. If you come to LA, you can't just walk around the Chateau, but sometimes you can sneak your way in there a little bit. That place is unbelievably cool. I mean, this is even before rock and roll. I mean, you're talking about Marilyn Monroe, oh, yeah. Mickey Mantle. I mean, obviously, a lot of people know John Belushi passed away in one of the bungalows. But I mean, you if you really love Hollywood history and you know Clark Gable and those kind of figures that place and the hotel across the street, which is now Mondrian sky bar. Mm -hmm. um, that was an old hotel where a lot of like Charlie Chaplin lived, but that the Chateau is, that's the coolest place in the world for me. I think this, it's an amazing hotel. It's only 42 rooms and you know, Howard Hughes lived up there forever. And the, the, the celebrities, the musicians, the artists, the crazy people, they frequent that place to this day. So Paul in the videos that I've seen seems like a really kind of down to earth, quiet, maybe, you know, meek is a word I would use to describe him from afar. Um, how does he interact with the Jim Morrison's of the world torching the place? You know, it, it, there seems to be completely different personalities and maybe that's, what keeps that place grounded? Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable how he's a very kind man. That's why I really love working for him and with him every day. 
um, you know, he's a legend in the recording world and, you know, he's friends with everyone. Steve Lukather, Eddie Van Halen. I mean, they've all done so much work there. And, you know, Paul's the owner that's, you know, still comes to work every single day. He doesn't have to, but he, you know, is in his office and works with me a lot on producing some of this stuff. And he, he's, um, you know, everybody's just like, you know, Prince wrote Purple Rain on this piano. And, you know, he always just says, you know, we're just a rental facility. People come in here, they do a little <laughs> music, whatever. And he just, he minimizes it so much. And I'm like, no, but you don't understand. Like, this is what Prince wrote Little Red Corvette on. And I think he's, you know, he grew up in this with his father being a very famous composer, Tutti Camerata, who would do giant sessions at Abbey Road and write, you know, was in the Jimmy Dorsey band and, you know, founded Vic Damone and all this stuff and, you know, did the music for Parent Trap and found, it used to be called Annette Funicello, a famous mm -hmm. actress, but Parent Trap did the Beach Boys movie too called Monkey Wrench. She couldn't really sing, so... Paul devised this way of making her voice overdubbed, and it was called the Annette Sound. And that was really famous uh, back in those days, was the Annette Sound. Everybody wanted that. So, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, Paul was growing up, but he was, you know, Brian Wilson was coming in at those times when he was a kid. Led Zeppelin was in there working on Led Zeppelin 2 and Led Zeppelin 4. I think, you know, it's just when you get that stuff early on in your life, it's not that he's not impressed. It's just he's so used to it. You know, when he talks about Van Halen, like one of the first things I did when I got there was interview him for the whole studio, which we have the history of Sunset Sound on our YouTube there, which we should probably update. But he was talking about, yeah, those kids, you know, Van Halen, they were out here playing basketball. And, you know, it's like, no. But it was like Prince was in Studio 3 at one point. Van Halen's in Studio 2. And I'm like, who was in Studio 1 in 1982? And it's like, you know... Purple Rain, Fair Warning, and, you know, he just, the stories he tells are just incredible. Oh, my he's gosh. so, you know, knowledgeable of Cher hanging out with Elton John in our basketball court in the middle, and Prince, he'd, have, he'd come to work sometimes and forget something and have to go back to the studio at 3 in the morning, and Prince would be out there shooting basketball by himself. He's, uh, he's done it all. He's seen it all. I mean, he's got a, he just showed us a jumpsuit that Eddie Van Halen gave to him for the Fair Warning album. And I love that story, the, the story that Dweezil told. I think he was, what, 12? And he shows up in that jumpsuit with like, very well could have had backlights behind him. You know, oh. yeah. um, all right. So speaking of, let's roll up our uh, sleeves a little bit with Van Halen. I got some questions for you. So you mentioned Ted's coming in. Yes. Any chance in getting Don in? I've spoke with Don, and people keep commenting on our YouTube, where's Don Landy? Um, you know, Don's a very complex individual. I've talked to him briefly. Uh, I know Dweezil, who I just spoke with about an hour ago. Um, and shout out Dweezil Zappa. He's been a very big help in kind of orchestrating this stuff, and his running with the Dweezil podcast is amazing. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's beyond amazing. But uh yeah I, i'm hoping he will i'm thinking once ted comes in that he'll pull the trigger and okay. say yeah i'll come in but it might just be audio it might be video i don't know he's never gave an interview before yeah but he's the one that knows everything he's the one that tracked the band even when they left here and did 1984 up at the 5150 house he went with them and you know even when ted left don was still tracking yeah he did 5150 yep uh yeah i want to get him in but ted's coming in Ted is uh, an extremely nice guy. I yeah. don't want to pressure him on Van Halen too much. I want to learn about his whole life because, sure. you know, it's as you know from the book, it's very impressive. And um, my first question, though, is going to be why did it take so long to sign Van Halen? Because they had been playing around for five years. Yeah. That's what I really am starting to dive into because that show at um, the Starwood, you know, they had played there not just once. They had been coming there for years. And as the gentleman, Van Morrison's guitar player that was on my show, um, Doug Messenger, mm -hmm. he was friends with Eddie. He was there the night that they played. It was raining in California. Ted Templeman, Mo Austin, head of uh, Warner Brothers, came in. But he had been calling them forever. Gene Simmons had done the demos with them. Why weren't they signed? You know, I, a lot of artists... A lot of A&R guys had seen them, but didn't sign them. And Gene took the time to do those demos. What, what yeah. happened to those demos? Where are they, Gene? 
That would be a really great question to ask. I, I think of the same thing when I look at like a, Bron- a Tom Brady, you know, waited till the sixth round and then look at him now. I was like, how did you guys not know this was going to happen? But I don't know. I look at it as back then it was disco, disco, disco. And even the covers um, that they would do sounded very much like what we know as Van Halen now. But back then, I think that was pretty extreme, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, they um I mean I think the covers were definitely Templeman and Warner Brothers cuz they needed hits and they knew I mean all the songs did well but I think that they they needed those hits to kind of cuz they weren't on, on an immediate just you know gigantic Justin Bieber kind of thing where it was yeah. the biggest thing in the world. They did this. They kind of just kept going up and you know as you know if you go straight up you go straight down. Uh, Templeman was, you know, he should have been the fifth member. He was very instrumental in harnessing what they did, um, developing some songs with them. I, I, I think he's one of the greatest producers ever for Van Halen one, but two also the Doobie Brothers work and everything else and Nicolette sure. Larson. And um, I'm very, very excited to talk to him. And I just want to have a you know, three things written down and let it go. And I yeah, absolutely. Dweezil's going to sit in with me too, so that'll oh, great. Be, uh, that'll be an epic talk. And you know, again, he's never gave an interview. He did the book, which Greg Renoff, another great friend of mine, is uh, the author behind. But um, what would you ask him? Oh man, that is a very tough question. I, I... all right. <laughs> so this is my background with Van Halen. I was born in '72, and I knew of Jump. By the way. Happy birthday, Eddie Van Halen. It's his birthday. I know. Today's his birthday. It just, you know what? It's, I'm not over it yet. It's still kind of, I can't, I can't wrap my head around it, you know? The studio not too long ago, because Wolf was tracking in Studio 3. Oh, was he? Uh, yeah, he came down. So that must, I wasn't there. My friend Jeff was uh, engineering, but yeah, he, I mean, I, I guess it was a very cool moment for him to come back to, you know, home base where he did, where he broke, you know, they did Van yeah. Halen one there and now his son's tracking in uh, the same studio. That's so, crazy. but uh, yeah, what would you ask Ted? Tell so, me? you know, I don't know if I am allowed to ask this question because, all right. So I'll, I'll give you a little brief history. I, um, I knew of Van Halen, but it, you know what? Like things just aren't the right time, you know? So I was 12 years old and I heard this, I was heard this knocking. I thought at my door, I literally stood up doing homework or trying to do homework. I had the radio on and I got up to check my door and no one was there. And by the time I got back, I heard that and it was, why can't this be love off 5150? I literally got up because I thought someone was knocking on the door and that ju- I don't, I don't know how to explain it. It just spoke to me. That's the best way I can. But anyway, long story short, um, I became entrenched with the Hagar era 5150 going forward. However, I'm not in that weird thing that Van Halen fans do that there's two factions. I went back and bought all the previous ones and just dove into it and spent like each summer was dedicated to it you know at least how that's how i remember it the thing about that i would ask ted and i don't know if he would ever answer this honestly is how difficult was it really to get those vocals out of dave i mean it was it was allegedly so bad that he tried to recruit sammy hagar to join them in 78 and replace dave before the album was even recorded so I, I would ask that, but I don't know. That's probably not a good question to ask. Who cares? I mean, David, <laughs> it's not like you're going to piss him off or anything, but um, that's one of my, that's a sadness of mine, quite honestly, because I look back and for that time, Dave was an amazing front man. What I'll say though, is that when you when I look back at it now, and I don't know if it's tainted from the 2007, 2012, 2015, Dave, I look back and it's just kind of, everything was vaudeville. The only difference was he had hair, and I call it the Samson effect. Dave had hair like Samson, and he had those powers, but when he lost his hair, kind of didn't have much left, in my opinion. And yeah. when, when the last three tours, when you got to put that dance floor in front of the drum riser, just so you can slide back and forth, that's what you got. 
I just, I kept praying, come on, let's get Sammy back. Let's get Sammy back. Cause that, I mean, that to me, that's just musicianship, but so, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I love some of the, actually, you know, I'm 37 years old. The first time I heard Van Halen was Sammy Hagar. Why can't this be love as well? That was my dad's big song that he was listening to. I, I can't tell you what year that was, but, um, you know, 86, then, 86. Okay. So I would have been three, but, um, <laughs> You know, I don't think I think that those first six, seven albums are some of the greatest songs ever. I mean, that's an, a, another thing. Like everyone focuses on Eddie being this great, innovative, monster guitar player doing things that nobody else does. But they were such great songwriters. Oh my gosh! Like they wrote the greatest songs, and I mean, even without the guitar, they, they would still be an amazing band. If you know, let's say Eddie was toned down. 7,000%. They would still be, I think, on the radio because they wrote great songs. Um, and they chose great covers that really made them their own. I just love, I think, you know, the David Lee Roth stuff is so good, though. And, you know, uh, Templeman has stated in his book, and also, I mean, it's public knowledge, that Dave was going to vocal lessons on uh, VH1. You know, and he was labeled another Jim Dandy and all this kind of stuff but for his looks. But, you know, he had to work on... Being the vocalist that we see, I think it was yeah. you know some overdubs and echo chamber and verb and all this other stuff. But it's almost you know him being not the greatest singer is what makes it so great, you know. And it's he they're all role players. They're like the '97 Bulls, you know. It's just like Luke Longley, Michael Jordan. They all do certain things, but they do them perfect. They they do those that, that area they have conquered. So I I mean I love every album. Yeah. So. I'll take whatever I can get. So the last three tours, great. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I would have rather had something else, but you know, yeah. um, but I, mean, I saw him at the Hollywood bowl, 2015. It was uh, awesome. It was like one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. You know what? I'll, I'll say this. I'll double down. Um, I could not for the life of me figure out what possessed them to release that live album in 2000, whatever that was. Tw- uh, I don't know when that was 13 or something like that. Yeah. It is so bad. His vocals are horrendous. However, I've been listening to that thing. I mean, I I didn't buy it. I didn't stream it. I didn't listen to it. I heard it once. I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I've been listening to that nonstop lately because that they've never sound better. Take him aside. Just listening to the three of them play. And I would have loved Michael Anthony to be back there. But just Wolfgang brought something special to that. And yeah. Eddie just sounded so my favorite part of Eddie was the moment where the lights went down and then you hear that noise. Like my mother would call it noise and the squeals and the this and the that and the drums would come in and it just, you know that that's Eddie Van Halen. It's not, I mean, even like the Steve eyes of the world, they're great, but they, there's something missing, you know, that they don't, they don't have that soul that he had. Um, the other question I would have, and again, risque questions, I wanted to know, are the rumors true? Like, did Michael Anthony play on everything that he's listed as playing on? Because there's been so many, you know, Eddie's on record saying that he's, he, you know, tried to replace him three or four times. Billy Sheehan has been invited to join the band a couple of times. Um, I just, you know, there's rumors that he wouldn't know this, but. Van Halen three was Eddie playing bass. So there, you know, there's rumors of that. So that's, that's another thing. Cause I just, you know, I, I would love to think that that was all Mike. I don't, he would probably never answer that question, but um. <laughs> that, those are the things though. Like even that live album you mentioned and like all the stuff that's coming out. I don't know if you watched the Juizel, me and Juizel, our interview, but yep. we talked about, you know, passionately how all these YouTube videos are emerging of all these concerts. I have people that have emailed me so much footage from like San Bernardino 75 and they're playing running with the devil. Like it sounds like complete garbage, but it's pure bliss to my ears. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you want to find those spontaneous moments. How did they play it then? What were they doing? It's, you know, their talent, even three years before they came into Sunset, was almost as good as the day they were. I mean, they were just a great, gifted god you know, place this band together and the story's so cool and the history. But I mean, that's what we are looking for now. We go back and forth all the time. I, I really topped Dweezil because 
I found, don't tell them, but I found <laughs> this obscure Eddie Van Halen interview from 1982 where he says, I wrote piano, I wrote a lot of fair warning on piano, and he wrote Unchained on piano. Uh, if you listen to Dweezil's podcast with uh, Nuno Bedencourt, Dweezil plays the piano and actually recreates Unchained, how he thinks it would have been wrote. But to hear that and how it would have transcribed from piano to guitar. Hear, hear yeah. about it later screams piano to me. Yeah, um, exactly. It's, but Unchained? Yeah, I, it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I thought that was just mind blowing. You know, what if like I don't think this could be possible. Mean Streets. I'm actually tracking down the work order for that right now. But I mean, that's the greatest song. My favorite Van Halen song. Is that your favorite? Oh, it's just so so good. And the guitar and his Weasel says that G chord is the greatest G oh my chord gosh. ever. And um, yeah, I mean. Van Halen one's my favorite album, but Mean Street's my favorite song. My favorite clip that I've seen or heard, excuse me, rather, was Eddie playing Eruption, I think in 76, but he left out the tapping part. And I can only, Matt, I can only assume that he didn't want to reveal that quite yet, just like he was turning his back. So I think he left that section out until the record. Is this a YouTube video you saw? It's a YouTube video. I'll send it to you. It was um, it was it's amazing because it sounds like it, but then it you're, it's missing that. Had you heard any versions prior to that? No, 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 no. It was seventy six, seventy seven, and it was at um, Starwood. 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 Yeah, I think it was yeah. there. I'll, I'll find that clip and send it to you. I didn't even know there was audio out of those shows. It's really, really crazy, um, and it's it's just I don't know any. It, I think I, I'm no different than anybody else. We're just craving for anything Van Halen now, anything new that we haven't heard or seen or, or looked at before. And the fans are so overdue for you know this kind of box set for new material, unreleased stories of you know making a 20 album box set. We'll pay whatever. Oh my gosh, um, we're just so starving for you know the stuff. So I don't know what's halting everything up i would assume it's probably the band or they can't they probably don't care maybe i don't know i don't, I don't know them, but. i even like that mitch malloy did you did you ever see that video i didn't he's that nashville singer yeah. um uh he did a little mini doc i think it's like 10 minutes long about his time in van halen um how he was asked to join the band and this was right um right after hagar and he had joined eddie asked him to join the band there's some yeah. demos of him singing like panama and stuff like that and then uh, a song i forget the song but then they ended up doing it with gary that was unreleased it's out there as well but um i just anything any any content that we can get about those guys and particularly eddie but I, i'm looking forward to ted i'm praying that you can get don in because don to me was Eddie's sidekick and he knows what was really going on in there. He's the one that would, you know, stay late or do, redo those fair warning overdubs that no one wanted him to do. And he's uh, the one that helped it build 5150 and he was there for everything. Sure. And, you know, he, I think knows all the secrets. I don't know if you'd ever, you know, share those, but well, he's yeah, the gatekeeper of that stuff. He is the gatekeeper, but also, I mean, what an interesting person he is. I mean, uh, <laughs> Just his, you know, being with Ted Templeman, who's this larger-than-life producer, Van Halen, who's just, you know, in a good way out of their minds. And he's just a quiet gentleman kind of, you know, tracking everything for him. Mm -hmm. He's the engineer. And I'd like really like, you know, I have questions galore for when, if, if and when he does come in. But um, learning how he progressed as an engineer throughout Van Halen 1 to, you know, the 5150 stuff, you know, how did you keep reinventing Eddie's sound as he was doing it? You know, because I'm sure Eddie would never have an engineer for that length of time. He didn't know Don before Van Halen won, but he kept him for all that time. And how did you keep up with him? What were you, you know, how were you tracking his rig and all these different ways and scenarios and song and sounds and songs he was making up? And uh, yeah, I mean, that would just be the greatest thing ever. Um, I got, I got two Ted questions for you. I thought of some. Yeah, awesome. I want to hear them. It's uh, one. What was what was the big difference between working with Sammy in '71 with his very first album ever with Montrose versus the last one, which was uh, VOA in '83, '84? Yeah. So, like, what was that? 
like those two, you know, young artists versus a relatively seasoned artist. And then the other one is what was the process of panning Ed, you know, guitar on one side and having that chamber on the other? Like, what was the, I know they say it was to replicate live, but like, you know, eventually they got away from that. So what was the thinking process? I would think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure he was the brains behind that. I, and that's kind of what I, everybody wants to know also. What was the roles, you know? How yeah. did they come in with a new song? What did they just play this and you kind of, you know, <laughs> shaped it up a little bit? Or were you very instrumental in those? Because, you know, um, what was the name of Ted's band he was in? Um, oh, what was that? And they recorded that at Sunset Sound, too, in 1972. That's so crazy. That's going to drive me nuts. Um yeah, I mean, he started as a musician. Also, you know, Van Morrison. Ted tracked Van Morrison, which Doug Messenger can tell you all about in the interview we did. But, um, yeah, I just, I'm, there's no information on that kind of stuff because Ted and yeah. Don have never gave interviews. And Eddie and Alex, the ones they do give, you know, it's very kind of on the cuff, you know, on the surface. Uh, yeah. MTV kind of stuff you could find here and there. There's a couple of good Eddie interviews. Well, it's interesting. Alex, um, they're teasing modern drummer just made a book, put out a book of uh, like a retrospective of Alex. And apparently they interviewed him back in June of last year. And, you know, he's pretty elusive. Um, And he gave some gave up some information I didn't expect from him, where he basically said um, he implied Dave wasn't the greatest singer and he's crazy. But the and the the 90% of the time they have no idea what he was talking about no idea where he was coming from and he was you know vaudeville and they were rock and roll but that 10% was magic and you know that's what worked you know and I, I guess I asked that original question about with for Ted about what was that whole wanting to replace him how difficult was it to get him to sing that stuff it's that 10% you know that it was worth keeping around I think Wow. Yeah. yeah I, uh, you know, it's weird when you see like stuff on in that modern drummer. I'm sure that's legit, but then it's like, you know, a lot of the stuff's fake that's coming out now. It's like yep. kind of reissue interviews and they're putting it up as new stuff. And I think the guys are just so burnt out. And, you know, now Eddie's passed away and people are just going absolutely crazy. But it's out of from a good place because they want to know about it. But there's, so much fake and disinformation out there and with youtube you can put up fake thumbnails and you know you click on it's not what it's supposed to be and it's a world of clickbait yeah exactly and um you know people steal our videos and then put it on their page and retitle it and then they do like a little intro oh today on the van halen roundtable Dweezil zappa tells about you know but that's our video they're using to get money off of it that's um weird. you know it's just so insane all the time. So I, I always wonder what's real, what's not in print. And, you know, Wolf's kind of playing police now where he's going around Twitter, Instagram, and everywhere and just destroying people that don't go along with what he wants to have happen. He's in a tough spot. Um, it's got to be really difficult to live underneath that shadow. Yeah. And now well, that he's, yeah. he's recording and everyone wants it to sound like that and, Sammy was on Eddie Trunk and he said something that just made me kind of understand. He's like, listen, everybody wants him to sound like his dad, but what if Eddie sounded like his dad? We would be listening to saxophone music right now. Like it has to progress, you know? Yeah. I don't think I'm just, I'm kind of curious of like, I understand selling the guitars and stuff, but like, I don't know. I just like, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, you know, it, what if somebody needs to sell the guitar? We're in a pandemic here, locked down. People are losing businesses left and right. Maybe that's the only kind of income that they can get to support their families. I mean, if it's a legitimate guitar, like Dweezil has like six of them I've seen that oh he gave to him. I saw, I saw today that he's selling guitars on Reverb soon. Yeah, he set up his own Reverb store. Um, again, he's got hundreds of these things. and it's Yeah. He's I mean, selling that green it. one that he played in a music video with his sister. I always loved that guitar as a kid. Oh, yeah. How to be a space cadet or something. Yeah. Or, which one is it? Is oh, it- no. That was – um, I'd have to look it up. It was kind <laughs> of like a poppy song. Like they were both kind of adults. And Was it Valley Girl? No. Oh, I'll, that was I'll, Frank's song. I yeah. know what you're talking about. My mother's a space cadet, wasn't it? 
I don't know. I thought that was when they were kids. Well, when you talk next time you talk to Dweezil, I do have a question for him. Let's text him right now. It's the day after Frank died, Eddie took him to Jimmy Page's uh, Rock Walk induction. And the day after Frank died, Jimmy Page took Dweezil? Uh, I'm sorry. Eddie Van Halen took Dweezil to Jimmy Page's uh, Rock Walk uh, induction. And all these guys were there. Zach Wilde's there, Steve Luthger, and all these guys. Um, Neil Sean. But there's yeah. recent footage that came out, like uh, ENG footage of just the event. No announcers, but just B-roll of the event. And yeah. there's this moment where Eddie just leans into his ear and talks to him for like three minutes straight. And it's the day after Frank died. He wanted him there just to kind of clear his brain and get him away from all that. And I, I just was curious if he remembers what was said. Was it just kind of oh, consoling that in that moment? Well, I haven't, I don't know if I've seen the picture, but this video, Eddie was just really in his ear, just almost, it, it seemed very delicate and very, you know, he had something very important to say, but it seemed very, it just seemed very touching and it lasted for like, two minutes three minutes long so i've been always curious if you know i i think that's what a lot of people don't realize or or know about ed and you know obviously there were times where like that 2004 tour where you know things were going sideways and he had his demons and stuff but he was just an incredibly just humble guy would do anything for you there's story after story of him just running into the street and just you know, hey, I'll be right back and giving some guy a guitar or Jerry Cantrell comes off that balance tour that I filmed and he was still living at his mom's house and he shows up off the tour and the whole entire garage are stacks of 5150 amps and Music Man guitars. It's yeah. just he was just that kind of guy. So I've always wondered that, you know, what, you know, what was there something said that he he doesn't have to say what it was, but it was there something profound that he was, you know, taking. Oh, it no, seemed like he was taking care add it later or if you text me in the next couple minutes yeah, yeah I, but there is a very famous photo if you go on sunset sounds instagram we have it posted so does dweezil on the day he died eddie's saying something in his ear and there's that great story from when i interviewed him a couple weeks ago about how eddie called him at 6 a.m mm. the day frank died he was the first person to call and you know he was he had a great soul so a lot of people with demons understand and have great hearts, you know. Absolutely. So I, um, but he was a great person, you know. Obviously, he was older, but to produce his album at twelve years old, go to his <laughs> school to tune his guitar. I mean, I know a lot of rock stars that are complete assholes. Oh, absolutely. Do anything like this, and um, yeah, it's a big. I actually sat next to Eddie Van Halen at the Tool concert at Staples Center. Oh, just last year. That infamous uh, concert where <laughs> the guy was asking Eddie Van Halen to take his picture. That is, I can't believe Wolf got the picture of that too. I mean, Eddie looks a lot older, but I mean, anybody that knows Van Halen would know that's Eddie Van Halen. Well, Joe the, Rogan was sitting there. It was like, it was, oh, really? The but, trick um, was, yeah. I had just assumed. So I lost my dad to cancer um, when he was sixty-five um, as well, and. Um, you know, you're getting chemo and all that, and you you look different, you know. And I can only, I've seen pictures. There's this picture of Eddie fixing one of his motorcycles, and and it just reminded me so much of his dad yeah. towards the end. And you know, I I you know I love giving that guy a hard time about that tool picture, but I I kind of get it. Um, all right, so before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about cycle gods. Oh yeah, nice. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I live on the Pacific Ocean right here and on the beach in Los Angeles. And um, I started making changes in my life in 2017. And I had destroyed my knees from sports and college and partying in Hollywood, falling down, just craziness. And I, you know, just decided to go a different route and, um, I really couldn't run anymore because of the arthritis level four and orthoscopic surgeries and just all kinds of no cartilage, no hard cartilage. So I bought a bike and I started riding like five miles every day. And then, you know, I go from Hermosa to Manhattan Beach. And then 
I started going Hermosa to, to uh, Marina del Rey, and then I started going Hermosa to Venice, which is 13 miles. And um, I developed this little course from Hermosa Beach to Venice Beach and back, um, 26.8 miles. And I started bringing friends on it and having discussions and talking about life and how to improve things. And, you know, I, I stopped drinking alcohol and uh, just I was – sick of the hollywood party life and you know yeah. it's very comes as eddie van halen obviously knows um and you know just everybody in that mix it's it can get it can consume you and for the detriment your life can you know start veering the wrong directions and you're not you know you're wasting time i think that's the worst thing in life is wasting time and um as i'm sure you know your 20s reflect your 30s, your 30s reflect your 40s, how you take care of yourself. So after, you know, raging out in my 20s, I didn't want to live like that in my 30s. So uh, at 34, I started Cycle Gods. And I would just joke around on Instagram and, you know, do cool little videos and stuff. And then I, in Venice Beach, I made a shirt that said Cycle Gods on it. I'm a Cycle God. Well, people started wanting them. So then I got approached by an investor and said he loved the idea. And we built a big web page, got manufacturing, and then we sold $20,000 worth of shirts in the first year. And now we're making donations to, you know, different charities and stuff and trying to help people. I've, uh, you know, I lived in the Hard Rock in Vegas for four months one time. I just went there, started winning and gambling, and I never left. My host... A casino host was from Indiana University, and I just stayed there and partied and gambled and kind of forgot about everything in L.A. I just lived in the Hard Rock Casino. <laughs> it was just fucking nuts. Good so, King Taco there. Yeah. Well, they're, they're closed <laughs> down now. Oh, did they? The Virgin uh, Casino. But, yeah, again, I mean, just I was sick of wasting any time in my life. And, um, you know, waking up hungover, losing things, and um, I just – found that the sanctuary on the bike and you know having a hobby it's it's a beautiful the if you live lucky enough to live in california it's 70 almost every day but um you know exercising uh, conversing with people that are having hard times so now we have like just kind of representatives all over i'll send you a shirt or a hoodie um but yeah cyclegods.com it's a great great uh, little organization i started and now we have uh representatives in Florida and Georgia and um, you know a lot of people are buying big orders in bulk of these shirts for like bike stores and cycling uh, kind of yeah. outfits and uh, I got a bunch of celebrities to wear them Nick Swartzen great actor he's he buys stuff all the time and because um, he had a really bad problem with some stuff he almost died in Colorado um, there's stories about that everywhere but yeah we've had um, great success and it's just kind of hit with people it resonated well resonated. I I, and I think I know why. I I love it, and you know I think everybody. You don't have to have a drug addiction or alcohol addiction to really be desperate. You know what I mean? Like everyone's struggling with all sorts of demons, and they're not necessarily what we all think they are at face value. So I pulled this quote off of your website. I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to kind of expand nice. on that because um, I absolutely love it. Um, I wasn't treating it as merely exercise, but missions, missions every day to save my life. That just spoke to me because, you know, it's, you know, whether that's someone dealing with procrastination and they're wasting time and that sometimes that's my issue. And it's like every day is a mission to kind of take that back and take your claim. But I can only imagine if you're dealing with alcohol or, you know, drugs or whatever it is, whatever those demons are, this statement kind of i think is why it resonates with people yeah i mean we're all living on borrowed time we only have there's no promise we're going to wake up tomorrow any of us and i think in this day and age where you know a lot of my friends waste their days sitting on facebook all day mm -hmm. um, you know i never understood when people said they're bored i if you know i had i don't have any time but if i did you know i'd become a better piano player like the one sitting right here i'd learn different languages. I'd travel more. I'd, you know, dive into obscure bands that I like. Um, I mean, we're just so busy at the studio, but every day we're gifted with this, you know, amount of time. I want to wake up early. I want to make my bed. I want to kiss my girlfriend. I want to, you know, 
really accomplished this one day in my life because that's all I have. And, you know, even with programs and stuff, that's like, you know, one day at a time or whatever. But, you know, my dad would go to, he was never an alcoholic. He passed away as well, but he suffered from depression. He would go to AA meetings because he loved the 12 steps and about, you know, the philosophy of this one day we're given and just seizing the day and not looking back and you're not, uh, you know, you're not your past. And I just, uh, you know, it really, a great saying my dad said was the past is a burden. The future is unknown. All we have is the now. So he actually had a company also called living the now, which is kind of, you know, carpe diem. And we just have this little bit of time and I don't want to waste it. Um, and you know, 90% of life is just showing up. It's like I knew once we started doing things at the studio, I'm not going to sit there and, ah, what if it fails? I don't want to make Sunset look bad or stupid or, you know, it, just do it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, then you know, figure it out, remold and resubmit. And um, people can do a lot of stuff that they don't even know they're capable of. We're holding these iPhones, which are video cameras in our pockets. You know, we can learn how to edit things. You can start this podcast like you have which is great and it looks great and i mean these are fun things to do and i love learning about people and music and stories good or bad and um you know i just want people to live to their full potential i've seen both sides of the coin and i know which one works for me and yeah. i think if you have a friend in life and you know someone that can motivate you a little bit and challenge you and not just you know like your fucking stupid instagram post or you know, real friendship, then I think that's great. And that's kind of what me and my little crew do and try to help other people out. And I think you brought up a good point. And again, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, you know, back when Tom Petty, Glenn Fry, those guys started to die, Prince, Michael Jackson, um, I remember thinking, wow, I'm going to, and 10, 15 years, I'm going to live in a world where like Paul McCartney's not walking around. Like it's, I never thought, I never in a million years thought that Eddie would have died this early. Um, But I say all that to say we have to document this stuff because quite honestly, I look at, you know, at least what's on radio now. And I think it's not the same, (laughs) you know, it's just not the talent level's not there. Just nothing is the same. And I'm like, we're, we're seeing a dying breed, you know, die away now. We get a sense of security knowing that, you know, Paul McCartney's still here in this world. The gatekeepers are still here. They're, they're surveying everything. And we know that they can, you know, come and drop an album anytime and it's going to be great. Well, you know, David Bowie's gone, and now there's two Beatles left, and um, I can't believe Keith Richards is still going. Unbelievable. But, uh, you know, it's it's scary because music's not the greatest right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure getting to know you over the last year or so, and yeah. um, I appreciate you coming in, and uh, thank you so much. Ooh.